0: A couple of weeks ago on his podcast, the comedian and actor Mike Birbiglia uh, interviewed Ira Glass, the host of the NPR radio show This American Life. And at one point in the podcast, Glass uh, was sharing an experience from many years earlier when he was living across the street from a seminary over on the west side. Every night, he would take his dog out for a walk, and he would meet this guy who was a student at the seminary called Joe Derbis, uh, who was also out walking his dog, and they started to talk, and as they talked, they asked each other, "Well, well, what do you do? And Ari Glass told Joe, I kind of invented this way to do a radio show. It's about stories, and they're funny, but they also have feeling. They have this structure, plot, then idea, plot, then idea, and Derbis said, yeah, that's what they teach us in there at the seminary. And Glass says, what do you mean? Joe says, that's the basic structure of every sermon. And Glass says, no, it's not. And he says, yes, it is. And so Joe explains that when you think about a sermon, you start with news or something in the congregation that's happened that week. You tell the story of that. And then you, you say, here's what it means. And then you go to a story in the Bible which relates to it and you tell that one. So it's basically story, idea, story, idea. And Glass can't take this. He says, no, I invented this. And Joe says, no, even if you look at Jesus' own sermons, it's basically the same. That he, he has that structure in many of his sermons. So Glass goes home, he opens up a Bible to the New Testament, and sure enough, he found that Jesus will often tell these stories and that he'd often give the meaning of the stories. And Glass concluded in the, in the podcast, he said, I accidentally invented something that was old at the time of Jesus. I didn't think of Jesus as a structure guy. I always thought of him more as a content guy, end quote. Well, it turns out that Jesus was both a structure guy and a content guy. And one of the clearest places that that comes out in the Gospels is in his storytelling, specifically in what the New Testament calls his parables. And it's his parables, these stories, that are going to be our focus over the summer in the sermons that we preach Everyone loves a story. Stories are universal and they're timeless. They can bridge a gap between people of different ages, different uh, social backgrounds, different cultures. And good stories don't just inform the mind, they engage the heart, as Ara Glass says. They have feeling. But what I hope we're going to see uh, this morning is that there is more to Jesus' parables than perhaps meets our eye. Jesus, is, of course, is well known for his parables. Parables like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son are known to many people, whether they are people of faith or not. But if I were to ask you what you thought the purpose of the parables was, I wonder what you would say. Some of the more popular responses to that is that the parables served as illustrations or as moral fables with a, a timeless lesson. And as we're going to see through the summer, they certainly did illustrate, and they do offer lessons, but if that's all they were, then there are some issues. For example, if the parables were somehow somewhat analogous to what we might refer to today as sermon illustrations, well then, to put it rather bluntly, Jesus was a pretty lousy preacher, because the disciples are repeatedly telling him that they don't understand what he's talking about, and he ends up having to explain it to them. And if you have to explain your illustration in a sense to decode it, well, then it's not a very good illustration, is it? It's like t- uh, telling a joke and then having to explain it. And then when it comes to these parables being just moral fables, well, based on the reaction to many of Jesus' telling of parables, if that's all they were, they were obviously at the time perceived as much more than moral fables because as one person has put it, no one ever tried to crucify Aesop. So how, how should we understand the purpose of the parables? Well, to answer that question, we're going to start this series uh, with what has been called a parable about parables, uh, namely the parable of the sower. And without getting too far ahead of ourselves this morning, we're going to discover in this parable that the seed sown by the sower in this parable represents the word, specifically Jesus' word. And it's that word that we want to learn about this morning and we're going to do so in three parts today. First of all, the puzzle of the word, Secondly, the purpose of the word, which will open up for us the purpose of the parables. And then thirdly, uh, the produce of the word. But before we do that, we're going to uh, look at the, the passage. That we, I've printed the whole passage in there. But to begin with, we're just going to look at the parable proper, which runs here in Matthew 13 from verses 1 to 9. You'll find it in your pew Bibles on page 818 and also in your orders of worship. Hear now the word of the Lord. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord, it's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Well, first then, the the puzzle of the word. Matthew begins this account by telling us uh, that on this particular day, Jesus left the house where he was staying and he goes down and sits by the sea. But on this particular day, everybody has discovered that's exactly what he's done. And so this massive crowd starts to form down on the beach such that Jesus gets into a boat to kind of withdraw from the the shore a little bit so that he can speak to the people. And it's at this point that Matthew tells us in verse 3 that Jesus told them many things in parables. This is the first mention of the word parable in Matthew's gospel, in fact, in the New Testament. And what's interesting is if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that the Hebrew word for parable is actually a word that covers everything from proverbs to stories to riddles to similes and so on. And what we also discover in the Old Testament is that the Old Testament prophets spoke in parables as part of their ministry. For example, Psalm 78, we read that the the psalmist says that the prophet opened his mouth in a parable declaring the glorious deeds of the Lord. By making such an extensive use of the parables in his own ministry, and his own teaching, it's safe to say that Jesus is intentionally putting himself in this line of prophets, indeed as the prophet who here we see is telling the people many things in parables. Well, then Matthew lays out the parable for us, and the details will be familiar uh, to some of us here. A sower goes out to sow. Some of the seed falls on the path and is devoured by birds. Some of it falls on rocky ground with not much soil. The resulting plant withers in the heat, and then a third type of soil falls among the thorns, and it's choked. But then the fourth seed falls on good soil and it produces uh, a harvest. And Jesus concludes the parable He who has ears, let him hear. Well, after this, apparently the disciples track Jesus down and they ask him. Why are you speaking to the people in parables, which being translated is basically says, Jesus, this seems like a really dumb idea. This just seems daft. You have this crowd in the palm of your hands. They have not come to the beach today to work on their tan. They're hanging on your every word here, and you're speaking to them in riddles? What are you doing? And the puzzle isn't just because of what Jesus, the manner in which Jesus was teaching, it's the content. Because as you look at this parable, it really just seems to focus on failure and rejection. So much of the seed ends up being wasted. Only a small portion actually bears any fruit. So the disciples are looking for an explanation for this puzzle, the puzzle of the word. What comes next is Jesus' response to their question, which brings us to our second point, and that is the purpose of the word. We pick up the passage in verses 11 to 14. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and he- hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, here's where Jesus' storytelling goes beyond this mere plot and idea uh, as described by Ira Glass. Here's where we discover that for Jesus, the parables were more than just illustrations or moral fables. The parables, Jesus says, are parables of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. That is, they, they are parables not about a physical realm, but about a rule and a reign. They're they're about not a place but a power. They're frankly, they're about the kingship of Jesus, of Jesus is the king, and that he's coming to make things the way they're supposed to be, to make things right. But then Jesus goes deeper than just give us a basic definition here. He tells his disciples these parables serve a double purpose, that on the one hand, the the parables reveal the kingdom to those who are receptive, to those who have ears to hear. They're designed to stir those whose antennae are tuned into the frequency of the parables. But Jesus says, on on the other hand, as well as revealing the kingdom, The parables also conceal the kingdom, that the parables are intended to confound those whose antennae are not tuned in to the frequency of the parables. In other words, to those who are rejecting Jesus, who are opposed to Jesus, who aren't interested in Jesus and his ministry. There had been ample opportunity for Jesus up to this point in his ministry to see that there were those who were following him and those who were opposed to him, those who reject him. He says the, the parables are intended as a filter to distinguish from that first group from the second group. That for those who genuinely are interested in following after Jesus, in whose heart God's spirit is at work, the parables open up this whole new understanding of this subversive upside-down kingdom. Now, if that's us, that's not to say that we always get them first time round. As with the disciples here, we might be a little perplexed at first, but we're, we're intrigued. We're wanting to understand what Jesus is really getting at. We're sensing that somewhere buried in these parables lay clues to this kingdom of God for which our hearts are longing. But for those who have really no interest in acting upon what they hear, these parables will actually come across as unintelligible, as unintelligible, as making no sense. It's not that those people have thick skulls. No, As Jesus goes on to say, quoting from the prophet Isaiah in verse, verses 14 and 15 here, the problem is that they have a hardened heart. That just as the same sun that melts ice can also bake clay into hard bricks, so the same parable can bring good news to some and judgment to others. So the parables both reveal and conceal. Now, before we move on to our third point, it's worth just hitting the pause button for a moment just to see at least one implication of this for us. This characteristic of, of revealing to those who are being drawn to Jesus and concealing from those who are rejecting Jesus isn't just true of his parables. This is true as a fundamental characteristic of all of Jesus' ministry. Or to put it another way, you're not going to come to grips with any of Jesus' message from the safe distance of a detached curiosity. The the revealing of this kingdom, this illumination of who Jesus is and what he's come to do is the privilege of those who truly want to know. As Jesus said earlier in Matthew's gospel, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. You know, when I was but a wee lad growing up in Belfast, uh, the the big supermarkets, which at that time were crazy prices and stewards, uh, started to introduce automatic sliding doors at their entrances. So put yourself in the scenario as a, a five or six year old child going shopping with your mother, and she says, You know what? If you walk towards that door, you won't even have to touch it, it'll open. And you know you're only five or six, but you've got some street smarts in you. You know how the world works, and you certainly know how doors work. That if you want to open a door, you either have to push it or you have to turn a handle and pull it. So as you know, you're kind of hesitant. You hang back. You don't know really how this works. And then you you see people walking past you, going towards the door. And as they approach the door, the miracle happens, and the door opens. And you see that's how it is with the Word of God. If you won't approach it, if you'll not get close, if you're not willing to ask genuine questions about it, it's going to stay close to you. But to those who genuinely are asking what it means and want to know what this kingdom is all about, it's, it's like taking a step towards those automatic sliding doors and them opening right before your very eyes. It's the purpose of the Word. Well thirdly then in this passage we come to the produce of the Word. And in the third part of the passage, Jesus explains the parable, but as he does so, he helpfully gives us some diagnostics to help us discern whether we're, which group we're in of those two groups that Jesus was talking about, whether we are those who, who are genuinely seeking after Jesus or those who, whatever the appearance is to others, are actually resistant and hesitant and really don't want to engage. And the diagnostics come as Jesus lays out for us the nature of the different soils in the parable. So we pick it up again as he starts with this explanation in verses 18 to 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So what we learn up front here is that while the seed represents the word, what Jesus refers to here as the word of the kingdom, the soil represents our hearts. And here we discover that the degree to which the seed of the word takes root and will bear fruit is not dependent on the sower, it's dependent on the soil. In other words, as hard as Jason or Chris or I might work to bring you God's word in a winsome and faithful and interesting way, Jesus says its impact and its effectiveness in your life essentially depends on the receptivity of your heart. Now, some of us might not like that particularly because it sort of robs from us our favorite excuse for not listening to a sermon, which is namely, I didn't like the preacher today. And maybe you don't like the preacher today, but the sad news for you is that Jesus says it's the quality of the soil, it's not the expertise of the sower that determines the harvest. (laughs) And the challenge, therefore, Jesus explains, isn't the quality or lack thereof of the preacher, it's that as you listen, you have three major enemies fighting to stop the word taking root in your life, fighting to render your heart unreceptive to the word. And they are the three enemies that always face us in the Christian life. They are the world and the flesh and the devil. Or in the order Jesus presents them here, the devil, the world, and the flesh. Let's look at them one by one. First, he tells us about the enemy of the devil. Look again at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Jesus here is warning us against listening with a hard heart. Here are seeds that are sown on the equivalent of the passing lane on a highway. That the beaten path in this parable is like the hardened heart of some hearers such that nothing of God's truth will stir them. And that hardening can come from various sources. It can come from intellectual pride where you say, you know, you can't honestly expect me to believe that, can you? It can come from moral obstinacy, where you'll say, there is no way I'm going to change what I'm doing just because of what you're telling me. It can come from a certain self-righteousness, where you say, me, a sinner? How dare you? Or it can come from a sort of bored indifference, where you say, well, you do you, I'll do me, but that's not me. But notice here who Jesus identifies as silently and secretly campaigning behind this defiant, cynical attitude. He says it's the evil one who comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. Some of you have seen this happen with your friends whom you've invited to church. You know, they've, they've kindly agreed to come along, and as you're listening to the sermon on that particular Sunday, you're actually thinking to yourself, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly the kind of message that I want my friend to hear. And so, you, you know, you get to the end of the service, you're, you're, you're just dying to, to know what your friend thinks. You say, let's go for coffee, let's go for lunch. And you go, you've barely sat down, you say to them, well, what did you think? And they say... Did the preacher have an accent today? Yeah, I really liked his accent. And you're going, really? That's it? That's it? Beware of the enemy of the devil and listening with a hard heart. Secondly, there's the enemy of the world. Verse 20 to 21, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet He has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The last book written by the uh, English preacher John Stott before his death in 2011 was a book entitled The Radical Disciple. And in the introduction to that book, Stott explains how the word radical comes from the same word as root. That is, to to be radical in the true sense of the world does not mean necessarily that you're extreme or fanatical. It means that you're rooted. And Stott goes on to say it's the absence of that rootedness that is the problem for those who are like the second soil in the parable. They're like the rocky soil. They have no root. These are hearts that hear the word and initially they're really excited. They're swept up in the emotion of it all. But anytime there's just a shallow heart, Jesus is only ever going to be treated as, as positive and encouraging. He's never a Jesus who steps on people's toes or who would call for anyone to a serious commitment. And so such people are all excited. They're telling anyone who will listen about their newfound faith. But, but the problem is that that the seed has only landed in shallow soil, which cannot take the heat when it comes. And so when people start to ridicule them or belittle them or sideline them at work because of this new declared faith, they, they wither very quickly. They have no root. They, they believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they turn away, a sort of spiritual five-minute wonder. They get involved in everything initially, but six months later, they're nowhere to be seen. Jesus says, beware of the enemy of the world and listening with a shallow heart. And then thirdly, he says, there's the enemy of the flesh, the word the Bible often uses for our sinful nature. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here Jesus warns us against a divided heart. There's an initial enthusiastic response, somewhat similar to the second soil, but unlike the second soil whose decision turns out to be very superficial, these these people don't seem to renege on their commitment altogether. They retain some kind of, of Christian profession, but as time goes on, Jesus becomes less and less significant in their lives. And Craig Blomberg, in his excellent book on the parables, says that those who are represented by this soil are the people who concern him the most because this version of faith looks genuine, but it's actually counterfeit. That of those who are represented by the first three soils, this group is the closest to appearing to be the real deal. And it's quite possible that this soil represents. Some of us here today, you might be totally prepared to stand up and be counted as a Christian in your workplace or with your friends or your acquaintances, even if it might bring some heat, it might bring some fire, but here's the better litmus test of the genuineness of your faith, that when loyalty to Jesus bumps up against other things that you deeply care about, whether that's your reputation or social status or or physical comfort or financial security… We find ourselves being pulled in in these different directions. Our hearts are divided by, by irreconcilable loyalties. Shakespeare said these lovers seek a place to fight and that place turns out to be the human heart. And in the end, as Jesus so incisively puts it here, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, hear that phrase, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and it proves unfaithful. Beware of the enemy of the flesh and listening with a divided heart. Jesus says when you hear the word, beware of listening with a hard heart, with a divided heart, with a shallow heart. Instead, Jesus says, as the word comes to you, hear and heed the word wholeheartedly. Hear and heed the word Wholeheartedly. Look at the concluding verse of our passage, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. This fourth soil is so briefly described, but the brevity is, is eloquent and intentional because it says that to, to, for us to be a fruitful Christian is not intended to be c- complicated. That fruitfulness is not a matter of complicated spiritual steps or difficult disciplines or particular techniques. It's simply a matter of hearing and receiving and understanding the word, receiving the word, sitting under the word, grasping hold of the word. That the essential thing is that the seed which holds the power enters the soil, that the word be heard for what it is, as Jesus says here. It's the word of the kingdom. So on this Father's Day, for those of us who are fathers, who want to be better fathers, this is where it starts, Jesus' word taking root in our hearts. For those of us who had long changed and transformation in our lives, that we would bear more of what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, this is where it starts, Jesus' word taking root in our hearts. Jesus says, let the person who has ears to hear pay attention. So you you get a sense as you go through this parable that, like we'll discover with all the parables, this parable demands a response from its hearers. It asks each of us to examine our own hearts to discern, well, which soil am am I like? And I'll be honest, you know, I can look at times... All through my life, even up to the present, where I see signs of the shallow soil. I see signs of the thorny soil in my own life. And I'm guessing if you're honest, you do too. So the question is, well, what could we actually do about it? How, in response to the word, can we better hear and heed the word wholeheartedly? And I can tell you that for me, it's been a matter of just developing good, robust spiritual habits. Obviously, the habit of being here on a Sunday is a great place to start. For some of us, it might simply be that we make the commitment that we're going to have a habit this summer, that when we're in the city on a Sunday, we'll be in church on on a Sunday. For some of us, it might be joining up with the men's Bible study or the women's Bible study that's going through the summer, or committing to, to join one of the community groups in the fall. But let me share with you one habit that I found helpful in my own personal spiritual Christian walk. A few years ago I read a book uh, called the, the Common Rule, Habits of Purpose in an Age of Distraction by a guy called Justin Whitmill Early. Early isn't a pastor, he's actually a lawyer like some of you. But his book develops this spiritual rule of faith built on four daily habits and four weekly habits. And I wanted to just tell you about one of the the daily habits he, he gives because it's really helped me to hear and heed God's word more wholeheartedly. And it's the fourth daily habit he has, which is called, he calls scripture before phone. Here's how he describes this habit. He says, refusing to check the phone until after reading a passage of scripture is a way of replacing the question, what do I need to do or know today, with a better question, who am I and who am I becoming? We have no stable identity outside of Jesus, he writes. Daily immersion in the scriptures resists the anxiety of emails, the anger of news, and the envy of social media. Instead, it forms us daily in our true identity as children of the King dearly loved, End quote. So confession time. After I read this book, I decided, well, here's one I'm going to put into practice right away. My mistake, however, was thinking that I could actually do this while keeping my phone on my bedside table under the rationale of, well, I still need a morning alarm, right? So the phone was there in the morning, and long story short, it was still phone before scripture most of the time. I failed miserably. But guess what? This might be worth the price of admission for some of you this morning. There are these things. You can get them online. You might even be able to find it in a shop near you. They're called alarm clocks. I discovered them. And I ordered one, and now I don't need to put my phone on my bedside table. And when I get up in the morning, I manage most days to go to the Word before I go to my phone. And that's been really helpful for me as I seek to hear and heed God's Word more wholeheartedly. Let me finish with this. Jesus not only told stories to reveal the kingdom of God, he told stories because as the promised king, Jesus Himself is the story. So I mentioned earlier, Jesus, here in the middle of this passage, as he's explaining the purpose of the parables, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And if you go back to Isaiah 6 and you look right after the verses that Jesus quotes, you find that the prophet there starts to speak of this judgment that is going to fall on the people of Israel of that day because of their hard-heartedness towards God and his word. And he pictures this judgment as God cutting down a tree and then pruning it back further and further and further until all that is left is a stump, a stump. And then he tells us that in that stump there actually is some life. And here's how he puts it. He says, the holy seed is its stump. And here in Matthew 13, In the middle of a parable about the planting of seeds, Jesus quotes from this very passage in which Isaiah promises that one day, many years hence, a new seed, a new shoot would arise and bring mercy and grace and hope and restoration on the other side of that judgment. He quotes this passage also because he wants his listeners to understand that he now has come as the sower of that seed. That he's the one who's sowing the seed of restoration of God's people, that Jesus would be the story himself, sowing this seed through His own death and resurrection, bearing the judgment we deserve for our hard-heartedness and our shallowness and our divided hearts, bearing the penalty for those sins, and then rising again to new life, like a seed buried in the ground and then bursting forth and bringing resurrection fruit as he rose from the dead. And the good news for us is that for those who have ears to hear, for those whose hearts are receptive to this word such that we're willing to give him our undivided loyalty, this resurrection life becomes ours. It's the engine behind this growth. It's how we see this transformation. It's how we see this fruit come in our lives, both now and in the future. So that as we hear this invitation to listen to Jesus' stories, And we heed that invitation. We come to see that these stories are ultimately his story, but we have received an invitation to make this story our stories too. He or she who has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word and you invite us to listen to it, to hear it to apply it to our lives. We pray that today that we would respond with hearts that are not hard, and hearts that are not shallow, and hearts that are not divided, but hearts that are wholeheartedly longing to hear you and see you at work in our lives so that that transformation can be a reality for each of us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, for we ask this in your name, Jesus, amen.